Welcome to Worldly, Vox's guide to the biggest stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's Yochi Driesen here with Jen Williams, and for the first time, not with Zach Beecham, but instead with Alex Ward, a sort of poor man's bigger and bearded Zach Beecham. Pleasure, pleasure. Um, so this week, we're going to be talking about Donald Trump's speech to the UN Tuesday, which was in some ways the clearest distillation of the Donald Trump worldview. People were wondering which Donald Trump would show up. It was this Donald Trump. That deal is an embarrassment to the United States. And some, in fact, are going to hell. Depraved regime. We will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. So there's a lot there, and we're going to spend the entire episode talking about it, because you had a couple of things going on. One, you had Trump talking more like a candidate than like a president. These were much of the speech, and we'll talk about this in more detail, were things he could have said on the campaign trail. Free trade is bad. Refugees are bad. I'm going to bomb North Korea. He called the North Korean leader Rocket Man. So going back to the campaign when he insulted all of his rivals, Lai and Ted, and, and all of those kind of insults. But it was also a kind of distillation of where Trump is at this particular moment. He's been in office now almost nine months. Much of the world is trying to get their measure of him. This is him speaking to the world. And then this is what he decided to say. Right. I think it was really interesting to hear because Steve Bannon, who is, you know, kind of the, I guess, the mascot of the anti-globalist kind of group inside the White House, and he was fired back in August. And there was a lot of conversation, you know, when that happened that, oh, you know, the globalists have won, right? So, you know, the forces, H.R. McMaster, General Mattis— that they had kind of won out over the the flamethrowers, right? The the kind of hardcore want to go in and shake things up and destroy the international system. And I think what this speech really showed is that that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, I think, Yochi, you noted um, earlier today when we were talking about this that uh, Stephen Miller had drafted the speech for Trump. Um, and Steve, Steve Miller, obviously one of the kind of acolytes of, of Steve Bannon and firmly in that camp. And so, you know, I think... It's important to kind of realize that, you know, it maybe wasn't as much all Steve Bannon who was kind of throwing these ideas out there, but rather that this is really Trump. This is really what he thinks. This is, you know, Alex, you were making a point earlier, you know, that this is how Trump has always thought. He's always said these kinds of things and that we shouldn't really be surprised that this is how he's responding. Yeah, I mean, in, in the dark days before I joined Vox, uh, I, <laughs> the very, very dark days, I uh, was basically just following Trump. Uh, and I read all of his books, lucky me. Uh, and he, the kinds of things he said today didn't surprise me because I'd read them before. Uh, he had said these things multiple times that, in fact, you know, the U.S. is spending too much abroad, that other countries are catching up, and that the U.S. needs to spend more time focusing on itself than abroad. Right, that, with Japan, right? Right. There was a time, there was a craze that people thought Japan was going to overtake America and this economy was going to be greater. And uh, he even mentioned something like that on the campaign. Of course, he meets with Shinzo Abe, the leader of Japan, and now everything's okay. They're best friends, uh, which seems to be also a, a Trump uh, trope, uh, so to speak. Hashtag Trump trope. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, in other words, no matter who his advisor is, no matter who uh, is in or out, this is who he is, and this is the kind of thing he's going to say. So I think part of the reason why there's been confusion is that, and that's a really interesting point, and I both respect and pity the, for you for having read uh, all of his books, but we're not always clear which is the Trump, right? Because there's the Trump that said NATO is obsolete, NATO of the military lines was obsolete, and didn't want to commit to the mutual defense provision that an attack on one is an attack on all, and, and didn't for months, and then finally did it randomly at a, at a press conference uh, in the Rose Garden. So it's kind of hard sometimes to get Trump into focus. It's like an old TV where the, the image is a little bit blurry and then finally it comes clear and then it gets blurry again. But 
there are parts about this speech uh, today, there are parts about this speech on, on Tuesday about Iran, about North Korea, which we'll come to because they were really fiery. But there was sort of a bigger theme, and we had talked about this a little bit before we went on air, but he stressed again and again the importance of sovereignty, again and again this idea of a nation state, that it was a kind of odd thing to say at the UN, the most international and globalized institution in the world, but he kept saying, that's not what matters. What matters is a nation state. What matters is a, so- a sovereign power of a country. And what matters is each country doing what's in its own best interest. And that works if you're trying to make something fit in America first sort of intellectual frame. It doesn't work if you're trying to make foreign policy work because there are many issues where what Trump thinks the world should do is not what those countries think the world should do. So if Trump is saying, hey, China, do what's in your own best interest, but also help us in North Korea but China doesn't think that that's in its own best interest, it sort of begins to crumble. Right. And I think when you're talking about, you know, I think it's a great analogy, just kind of like tuning in the TV to see which Trump kind of shows up. I think part of that has to do with the fact that he sometimes tends to tailor his remarks to his audience and to kind of maybe sort of tell people what they want to hear. Um, And Alex, who our listeners should know, uh, used to be and maybe still is a part-time stand-up comedian you know, understands kind of how to work a crowd, right? And and Alex, you're pointing out that, you know, he he knows his audience. And it seemed like in this case, he's sitting, he's standing rather, in the UN General Assembly Hall. It's this massive hall. You have delegates who are sitting there. Luckily, it was early in the day, but a lot of them are sitting there slumped over in their chairs, you know, their hands kind of holding up their heads, their eyelids drooping, and they're listening to Trump kind of go on and on. And you know, he's talking to this international body of people who are there to literally work together and try to work out the international problems. And he's saying, we don't really need to do that. We should all, you know, I think he actually at one point said, you all should serve your own countries first, just like I serve my own country first. And I think, you know, Yochi, you made a point earlier about how his audience maybe wasn't that group of people who were sitting there, that his real audience, um, you know, was was his base back home. And, and you know, this was in New York, so back home, still in the U.S. But that when he's actually addressing these world leaders, their reaction wasn't really what he was most concerned about, but that he was rather trying to kind of speak as candidate Trump and try to rally kind of some support for policies that are not going so well back home. To thank you for um, exposing my other identity to to the multiple listeners out there. I will say that what uh, I'm not saying Trevor Noah stole my bit, but what I <laughs> uh, he did mention the other day uh, something that I had been wondering for a long time. You know, Trump was, if anything, is so good at knowing who he's in front of and sort of the pressure points or the right notes to hit uh, to get a rise out of the audience. Right when he's doing a rally, it's you know lock her up. Uh, when it's uh, giving a speech on a, a war for Afghanistan in front of veterans, uh, he's pretty calm. He's pretty cool and collected. He reached the teleprompter. In this case, as you mentioned, he's giving a speech about why international relations, the way we've been doing it for for decades now, the collectiveness of it, why that's a bad idea. Uh, that is not a really good audience recognition there by Trump. I mean, he was reading this one, and it's interesting, I'm glad you flagged the teleprompter issue. There are times where he's given prepared speeches that were disastrously out of tune. So when he spoke not long after winning the presidency at the CIA, and he was standing in front of the CIA's wall of heroes. So these were stars for people who uh, died while serving the CIA, where there's no name for them. So for people in the CIA, this was sacred. And he was standing there giving a speech, mocking the press and bragging about his, his election victory. So 
there are times where he does kind of misread the audience or misread the occasion. What was striking to me here was he knew exactly who he was speaking to, both in the sense that he understands in his gut and in his DNA what his listeners at home who are American watching on Fox News want to hear. They want to hear somebody bashing those feckless, weak countries that don't pay enough. They want to hear somebody bashing countries that take advantage of us. They want to hear someone who's willing to go to war with North Korea, who mocks foreign leaders. So he kind of gets that. And for the people who want that back here, they got it. I mean, they, they got the red meat. The problem is for the people who are listening there, again, it's not clear to me what he hoped he would do. If he was trying to come off as kind of a bully, and, and maybe that will scare them, okay, kind of. If you want to come off as juvenile for some reason, okay, kind of. But I'm not clear otherwise on what the goal was. I think there was a really interesting kind of moment. It, you know, when you talk about he he's kind of saying this stuff to talk to his base, there was a part where he was talking about Venezuela. So he, he went on an extended kind of criticism of of Venezuela, of Nicolas Maduro, um, you know, the president of Venezuela. Great pronunciation. You know, I practice really hard. Um, he went on this extended critique of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela and, you know, the kind of collapse of the economy and, and how badly Maduro has handled the economy there and how the people are suffering, which I actually agreed with a lot of what he had to say on Venezuela. And I was glad that he brought that up. But it was really interesting. Like, he had this line where he was saying basically that, you know, the problem with the Venezuelan economy wasn't that, you know, they had done a bad job Im- implementing socialism, but that rather they had implemented socialism to the letter. And that's, you know, what failed. And he's, you know, slamming socialism, which at a campaign rally is something that would kill. But like, you could tell he was expecting, you know, cheers. And it's just like kind of awkward silence. And then you hear people laughing throughout the hall. And we were watching it on on TV here in the newsroom, and they were showing, they were cutting to like scenes of the audience. And you saw like one of the delegates from Kenya was literally bent over his desk laughing. And it wasn't like they were laughing with Trump, like they were in on the joke. They were literally laughing at Trump for like basically trying to kind of mug to the crowd and be like, yeah, socialism, bad, am I right? And everyone was just like, oh, this guy. Like, you could see the whole, you know, they're literally laughing at the United States president in the middle of the United Nations. And I've never seen that before. I think it was more than just like a funny, one-off, weird moment, which it was. But it was also, you know, Trump, a a good friend of mine, uh, Rick Glass, hi, Rick, um, was texting me earlier. And he's like, you know, didn't Trump say that, you know, when he was elected president that, you know, the world would never again laugh at the United States. And here it is. He's standing in the UN General Assembly giving his first big speech on the international stage, and people are literally laughing at the ridiculous stuff that he's saying. So, uh, I do want to take a step back for a second because there are parts of the speech that are worth engaging with, the, sort of the ideas of them. I right. mean, I, I agree. The atmospherics were fascinating, as were the theatrical elements. But part of it that was so interesting to me was Trump's view of history which also came through in the speech. Yeah. In the past, Trump has likened himself to Andrew Jackson, a president from the 1800s. He sort of had this view that he believes he fits into that is more than a century old. So he was speaking to the UN, an organization founded after World War II that has, for its many, many flaws, been part of what has been relatively stable world since World War II. There have been wars, obviously, but not world wars, catastrophes that don't rise to the level of what happened pre-creation of the UN. And Trump paid tribute to that in a strange way. He talked about the Marshall Plan, which the U.S. used to help rebuild Europe. We talked about the U.N. and its role sort of over the decades. But in his telling of it, these weren't things that were good kind of in and of themselves. These weren't good in a, in a moral sense. These were good only insofar as they helped the U.S., basically, is what he was saying. And at one point, when he was speaking later in his speech about refugees, he said, out of the goodness of our hearts, that's verbatim, out of the goodness of our hearts, we, the U.S., are, are paying to keep refugees fed. 
which is, again, it's sort of an odd connotation. It's not, as a wealthy country, we have the moral obligation, the legal obligation. It's just, hey, pat us on the back for doing this kind of basic human decency. And that was striking to me. You know, and Alex, you'd mentioned this a little before, kind of the other historical thinkers, arguably, that this fits into, because this doesn't just come out of nowhere. Right, it doesn't. Um, and if you look, for example, at like uh, Machiavelli in the in the Renaissance, or even look at Otto von Bismarck, who united Germany in the 1800s, you know, this sort of self-interest nation states are the ones that govern the way the world works and that they should only serve, you know, go for their self-interest. That's essentially what Trump just proposed. And that's the manifesto he just kind of gave. That it's no that this collectivism, this states working together for the common good for moral reasons, is relatively new, right? It comes from after World War II, again, when all these institutions were set up, including the UN. For him, it seems like it's a blip. It's a blip on the historical radar. Usually, especially since 1648, Treaty of Westphalia, put it out there. Get your all, all those Westphalia nerds out there. I'm, I'm super excited. Hashtag nation states. Yeah, I'm telling you, they're super excited. I mean, since then, right, since 1648, we've had this nation state system that is still relatively new in, in the scheme of, of human relations. But for most of it, it has been individual countries looking for their own self-interest and, and looking out for themselves. Trump seems to want to go back to that. Right. I mean, it's it's that total Hobbesian, like every man for himself, you know, straight realist kind of philosophy and realism in terms of, you know, the, the international relations theory of realism, which is literally, you know, the international system is anarchic. There is no world government, sadly, for Zach Beecham, uh, who would like to have a world government. So every man for himself, right? You You look after your own interests first. And, you know, number one, way to kind of do that is through power and, and you know, especially military power, but also economic power, diplomatic power, soft power, things like that. Um, and, you know, on paper, right, there are a lot of, of realists who would look at that general argument and be like, yeah, you know, that's definitely how the international world works, right? As opposed to the kind of pie in the sky, liberal internationalist kind of, oh, can we all get, you know, get along, hold hands, sing kumbaya and solve climate change, right? It's that no, we're going to all, you know, narrowly pursue our self-interest and we'll work together, you know, if it if it helps us. Um, but I think the problem is that that actually starts to break down when you look at the rest of what Trump had to say. So it's essentially like a like selective realism, right? It's like realism when it suits me. So, you know, he's had stuff like, I'm not going to, you know, the, Un the United States doesn't want to impose its values or its way of life on other countries. You know, you guys should all, you know, Sovereignty is paramount. You guys should all do what's best for your own countries. And, at, you know, the next breath he's saying, hey, thanks, everyone, for working together on ISIS. And, hey, thanks, China and Russia, for essentially going against your own interests and pushing hard on North Korea. You know, and we need to do this. And, hey, Venezuela, your way of life, your economic policy is really not working. It's a failed ideology. You need to do this other thing. And you need to listen to me. It's, Which is the exact opposite of just that kind of idea that you can do whatever you want, everyone's kind of on their own. It's, yeah, when it suits me, but in these other cases, I want you to do exactly what I have to say and let's all work together. It, it makes no sense. Well, it's also striking when you listen to a speech like this about what is said, but also what's not. So what things he decided to stress, what he decided to sort of downplay, what he right. decided to, to ignore. And, and there's a line in his section about World War II so again, this is Donald Trump talking about the creation of the UN after World War II, the role of the U.S. in creating the, the UN and the role of the U.S. in building a post-war system that for the most part is held. And so these are his exact words. The Marshall Plan was built on the noble idea that the whole world is safer when nations are strong, independent, and free. Full stop. And if you're looking at that or listening to it, there's a word missing. Democratic. 
What he is not saying is the world is a better place when nations are democratic. What he's not saying is the Marshall Plan, which was specifically designed to create a Europe that was more democratic than its predecessor. He's leaving that piece out of it. And so, you know, Jen, we're talking about Hobbesian. It's very interesting because he does go back to this sort of idea that nations are just competing with each other and everyone looks out for themselves. But it is also striking that we have a historical record to point back to. The Marshall Plan was in part to help create a democratic Europe. It has succeeded for the most part in creating that. But when Donald Trump speaks, not sort of of what might happen in the future, but instead of what happened in the past, he ignores that part of its history. And that is, is itself, I think, so revealing. And I think it's worth pointing out to go back to kind of two things you guys said is that, you know, Trump believes that this sort of nation states in everyone for themselves system is what's going to lead to a more peaceful, prosperous world. He forgets kind of two convenient examples from from the 20th century, which would be World War One and World War Two. I mean, these these the, oh, those. Yeah, those. I mean, small caveats. I mean, the reason we have the U.N. and the World Trade Organization and the and the International Monetary Fund and all of these kinds of uh, Bretton Woods system uh, institutions. Yes, yeah. Bretton Woods. Yeah. I mean, the reason we have all these things is because millions of people died in the 20th century, full stop. The, that whole system that Trump is now championing, thinking that's going to make the thing, make the world great again, is literally what led to what the institutions we have now. It's going back to a worse time. So I want to jump in for a second into a couple of the issues where he spoke both, both uh, and most at length, but also the punchiest. And let's hear first what he said about North Korea. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. So there are two parts of that that were really striking. And in kind of reverse order. So first, Trump takes out the Rocket Man insult. I mean, first, we didn't realize he was such an Elton John fan. Rocket Man! I'm sure Elton John loves having Trump uh, in the ranks of his album buyers. But Rocket Man's such a weird thing to say even on Twitter about the person who runs a nuclear-armed country the right, way Kim Jong-un does. which is where he said it first. Exactly, which is where he said it first. It is an even weirder and more discordant thing to hear at the podium of the UN General Assembly. And yet, there we are, that Rocket Man is, is leading a suicidal regime. But it's the first part that is remarkable. So this is Donald Trump, who a few weeks ago talked about fire and fury when he was in his Game of Thrones period, and now figures fire and fury is not enough. Let's go just full-on annihilation. In the hall of the UN, the UN, for all of its many, many, many failures, is devoted to a sort of noble goal, which is avoiding war. And that's its fundamental purpose, whether you like it or don't like it. And here's Donald Trump standing in that same hallway saying, we will totally destroy another country. And that, to me, I was listening to it in real time, sitting next to Jenna with Alex, and all three of us, I think, the jaws came down. They would listen to it again and read the transcript, making sure it was all as we heard it. It is, I cannot overstate, for myself at least, how terrifying and striking that was to hear a president say. I think for me, it, it was really remarkable because it sounded exactly like the kind of bombastic, over-the-top, bellicose statements that Kim Jong-un and before him, Kim Jong-il, you know, would make in their, you know, big pronouncements, their big speeches when they have big rallies and, and marches or in the, in the North Korean press. I mean, it's literally these kind of, you know, we will obliterate the United States. We will turn your country to ash. And, you know, I actually think it's, it's similar in a lot of ways, not just from the bombast, but I mean, if you actually look at what Trump said, which is the way we also try to do when we look at, at Kim Jong-un's statements, we're like, yeah, okay, he threatened to reduce our country to ash. But he followed that with, if you guys continue to do this, or if you, you know, invade us, or 
there's always some kind of additional statement that we tend to kind of leave off. And I think if we're going to give Kim Jong-un the benefit of the doubt, I think it's also fair to give Trump the benefit of the doubt and say that, you know, while he did say that, you know, we could destroy, he says, if we are forced to defend ourselves and our allies, which he's saying in a defensive way, right? If you attack us, then we will do this, which, you know, it's really belligerent rhetoric, but it's not exactly saying we're coming for you tomorrow, duck and cover. Now, the question becomes, you know, when you're actually trying to translate that into policy, does it mean at what point did you decide that action needs to be taken in defense, right? Then you get into the preemptive versus preventive force and that whole kind of argument that we saw, you know, with Saddam and back in, um, you know, the invasion of Iraq. But what's interesting to me, one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, it's different when you're standing on the floor of the UN General Assembly and making these kind of statements. It's one thing to shoot your mouth off on Twitter or shoot your texting thumb off. I, I don't really know how to how to phrase that. But, you know, it's one thing to kind of make these, you know, off-the-cuff statements. We've learned that Trump does that, right? Like, we're kind of used to that at this point. But this wasn't Trump going off script. I think it's really important that we, for people who maybe didn't get a chance to see this, first of all, you should. We also have a full transcript up on our website. This was all on purpose. The Rocket Man line was in was written into the script, presumably. Like, he wasn't just riffing. Which means, like, he sat down with his advisors, presumably, and said, I'm going to get up there and threaten to destroy North Korea. Hope that's okay with everyone. I'm going to put money down and say that Rocket Man was not written into the speech. I'm going to say that Trump ad-libbed that on stage. Um, that- oh, I'll take that bet. Will you? Yeah, I'll take All that right. bet. All right, we'll do it. All right. No <laughs> idea how we're going to do that, but we'll figure it out. Maybe <laughs> we'll, get some screenshots of the that's teleprompter. That's true. We'll, we'll do our bet. Um, I think it's important, you know, after the clip that, that we played, Trump— after berating the UN, which is the whole point of the speech, kind of put the onus on the UN to stop the war. I mean, the, the, after this will not be necessary, he says, that's what the United Nations is all about. That's what the United Nations is for. Let's see how they do. He's effectively— he's Right, like, also he says they, not yeah, we, right? Yeah, he's, he's like out—he's almost like George Carlin, who used to say, like, you people, as if he wasn't part of humanity. Like, he, he's just kind of outside yeah. watching in as if he has no agency as the president of the United States to have any effect whatsoever on how we deal with North Korea. He's effectively given—he's outsourced this now to Haley and Tillerson. Thanks for listening to Worldly. If you're looking for a new podcast to try, how about Planet Money? Give it a listen, because one thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't necessarily care about business or economics. It's just a smart show with great stories, it's well-produced, and it's fun to listen to. So find Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. If any of Trump the benefit of the doubt as to why he might have said they, he may have been saying, we know what we want to do. We have come to the UN Security Council again and again to try to do things on North Korea. Those have been blocked by Russia and China. So the they might have been a reference to those within the UN Security Council who are blocking it. But I do just want to make a point again, because I think with North Korea, it's particularly striking. Let's again, we're, we're going to engage with this idea seriously, that in his view, countries should do what is in their best interest. They should look out for themselves first, foremost, end of story. But let's talk about China and North Korea specifically, right? So Donald Trump believes that the key to solving the North Korean crisis is getting China which is North Korea's biggest diplomatic ally, its biggest trading partner, to pressure North Korea. That is eminently logical. It's been the policy of the U.S. going back to the Clinton era. That's what a lot of the Bush era. most experts believe is one of the biggest keys into right. unlocking that situation. Exactly. So when he, when he says that, he's fully in the mainstream of American foreign policy. Right. 
But by his own logic, if he's saying countries should do what's in their best interest, what's in China's best interest is to have a North Korea that is still run by Kim Jong-un, that is not united with South Korea, that is not an, an ally of the American government, that is not a Western nation that is right on its border, that does not collapse and send millions of refugees flowing into China. And so just by his own logic, if you're saying, hey, China, do what's in your own best interest, that means China is not helping you on North Korea. And, and by North Korea's own logic, or by by that logic, it should have a nuclear weapon and it should have a ballistic missile program right. like to, in order to defend against any kind of regime change. I mean, it, this is sort of the whole problem with this state should be able to pursue what they want kind of deal. Because one, there's the chance for miscalculation. And two is what is good for one state is not good for another. And therefore, you're going to have these kinds of misunderstandings. I mean, you, you, you can't say, even though he did, we don't want you to do X, but do X anyway, because that's how the world should work. So for people uh, who are hearing Alex for the first time, beyond being a stand-up comic, he's also our spectacularly talented defense reporter. And the reason I mention that is Donald Trump in the past has said the military is locked and loaded to fight North Korea. Now he's talking about the ability to totally destroy North Korea. And I, I think it is worth just looking at that for a second. I mean, could we? Like, are we locked and loaded to a war with North Korea? Could we? Even if you take Trump at his word, could we totally destroy North Korea? The answer is we could destroy North Korea, but at great cost. Uh, maybe to your first point, though, are we locked and loaded? Not at this second, right? I mean, there was a moment where Trump said, we're putting ships in position where we got missiles ready to go. That wasn't the case. There wasn't even the ship, the, the aircraft carrier wasn't anywhere near the area. It was heading uh, in the opposite direction. Yeah, it was direction. heading in the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, in a different ocean? Yeah, ex- <laughs> it's a detail, Jen. It's a ship and it's <laughs> details, in water. <laughs> details. So could we destroy North Korea? Yes, we could. The cost is North Korea would do kind of two things. One, it would go after South Korea and especially Seoul, the capital that has about 25.6 million people in the in the, in the metro area. And then it would go after Tokyo, which is an even bigger city in Japan. It has that ability. It also, of course, North Korea has chemical weapons. It has special, you know, 200,000 special operators. It has a mass, it has a massive amount of capability to harm uh, the countries in its area, including the world's largest artillery force. So, could, does the U.S. have the ability to take out North Korea? Sure. It would also take out a lot of our allies, which would be a massive cost. Yeah, and I also, absolutely, and I also think, you know, to go back to the point that I was making earlier about, you know, Trump saying that, you know, if we have to defend our ourselves and our allies, you know, we could destroy. I think that's a very different question saying, like, if if North Korea were to launch a missile at even Guam, right, and, and hit a U.S. territory— or, you know, God forbid, shell soul or do something, you know, horrifying beyond the kind of provocative things it has been doing. And, and admittedly, they're pretty provocative, right? Firing a missile over Japanese territory is provocative. But that's also different from firing a missile that lands on Japan, on Tokyo. In that case, it's a very different conversation about do we go to war, you know, to try to do something to to either punish North Korea or try to, you know, take out the regime or whatever versus do we do something like that to try to get them, you know, to topple the regime now in a sense that they're not, there's not an imminent threat to the United States in the sense that there's a missile about, you know, poised about to hit us or a credible threat. And it's a very different conversation. And I think it's important also to point out that it's not just, you know, people in Seoul and people in Japan and U.S. soldiers. It's also the North Korean people that would suffer horrendously. You know, the regime is not the same thing as the North Korean people. The regime is doing horrible things to its own people. But a war to take out the regime would still be, probably have horrendous, horrendous humanitarian effects on 
innocent North Korean people who are doing nothing but trying to survive. And it's worth noting that uh, Trump, to his credit, I think, and I mean this, but to his credit, he spoke somewhat movingly about the suffering of the North Korean people. So in his framing of this, it was not simply do this because he's threatening America, America's allies. He also spoke at length about North Koreans who are starving. But there was another country that Trump spoke about a lot, and and that was Iran. We're going to hear in a second what he said, but it's worth noting just at the outset Unlike North Korea, where it's a question of do we send enough military forces of our own to go to war, with Iran, the question is a simpler one, which is there's a deal in place. It's a diplomatic deal. It's not a military deal. It's a diplomatic deal. Does the U.S. abide by it? But this is what Donald Trump had to say about that deal. The Iran deal was one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the United States has ever entered into. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States. And I don't think you've heard the last of it. Believe me. Those last words are, in some ways, what are most interesting to me. Trump has bashed the Iran deal since he was on the campaign trail. He's never liked this deal, and he's never he's never tried to hide his hatred of this deal. But he's also not yet torn it up. The reason why these words matter now is that on October 15th, specifically and literally October 15th, he has a chance to do that. That's because under the terms of the deal, this again is the Obama administration's nuclear deal with Iran, where we lifted sanctions we had on Iran. They curbed their nuclear program. The president has to recertify every few months that Iran is abiding by it. The next time up is October 15th. So if he certifies it, the deal stands. If he doesn't, then functionally, the deal begins to fall apart. Donald Trump, the last time he certified it, news leaked out right after that he didn't want to, that he had to be sort of badgered into it by his his advisors. He then publicly said that he kind of didn't want to do it. So he confirmed the fake news, and the fake news is reporting accurately of, of his hatred of this deal. But it's interesting because, you know, Jen, you mentioned before the, the laughing Kenyan during his socialist line. But when they pan and show other world leaders, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, during this part of the speech, looked like he just won Powerball. He has not been happier since he was last not indicted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was the candidate, the canary, right? He's sitting there grinning, his wife, Sarah, sitting next to him, just grinning. I mean, they were so happy. And that's that's because, you know, we know that they met earlier. And one of the big things going into to the UN General Assembly, you know, that people were talking about that was that Benjamin Netanyahu was going to push really hard to get Trump behind the scenes to try to pressure him to to essentially cancel the Iran deal next time. You know, Trump goes on to say, above all, Iran's government must stop supporting terrorists, right? And he names Hezbollah and, and other terrorist groups and saying that Iran is funding these, threatening their peaceful Arab and Israeli neighbors. That's one of the biggest sticking points that people don't like about the Iran deal is that it didn't include, you know, language or penalties to stop Iran's other behavior. It was very narrowly tailored to the nuclear program. And again, on purpose, because there wouldn't have been a deal. But a lot of people, including Benjamin Netanyahu and and plenty of people in America, interestingly, not a lot of the Israeli defense and, and intelligence community doesn't actually tend to agree. They actually think that the Iran deal was, in general, pretty good. But, you know, that that's the main criticism, is that the deal didn't do more to, to curb Iran's bad behavior. And it's worth pointing out that there is currently no indication that Iran is breaking the terms of the deal. Right. So far, it seems to not be uh, enriching uranium. It is not trying to produce a nuclear weapon. So as of now, the term Iran is following the terms of the deal, which is why it, it I think, somewhat fairly is going, hey, U.S., why are you hurting us? In this case, why you keep bashing us? Um, that's not to say Iran is a good state by any means, uh, but in terms of what they already agreed to, uh, Iran is abiding by its side. Right. I mean, they poured concrete over their reactor. Right. They're doing that. The IAEA, you know, that 
monitors, it's their their job to go and monitor. They, you know, say that everything that they can find seems to be in compliance, right? It's not their job to to officially decide who's in compliance, uh, as one of our brilliant uh, readers pointed out. But, you know, it's definitely they're the ones who go in and monitor to see if if they're starting to kind of sneak and, and do nuclear activities on the side. And by all accounts, they're not doing that. They're I mean, following uh, the, the letter of the deal. Iran is a, is a tricky issue because they are following the letter of the deal. But as Trump points out, they're not following the spirit of it, which is a weird phrase because when you say that, you are acknowledging they're following the letter of the deal, the terms of the deal. Right, but what does that mean? Right, but, but it is worth just underlining a point, Jen, that you made a bit earlier, which is this is not a country that's remotely a U.S. ally, nor is it a country that is remotely operating within the rules of what much of the world, not just the U.S., would want a country to operate within. It does support terror groups. It does fund a militia, uh, Hezbollah, in Lebanon that has the power and, and has shown an ability to fight Israel, the most powerful military in the Middle East, to a standstill. It does support the families of suicide bombers in the West Bank and elsewhere. So this is not a, a friendly government. And, and it's worth pointing out that Trump's hatred of Iran is shared by people who are thought to be more temperate than him, including his defense secretary, Jim Mattis. But it's within his power in, a, in the very near future, in less than a month, to tear this deal apart. And, you know, Alex, you made this point before when he said they, where he sort of it was almost like he was a commentator on TV sort of analyzing this other alien institution. He used a kind of similar phrasing where he's talking about the Iran deal, where it was, I don't think you've heard the last of it, believe me. It's almost like he's like a, a pundit saying, hey, they'll talk about Iran again, as compared to I'm the president, I'm going to decide. There, there was one thing, it just jumped out to me in the moment, and I, I think it, as we've talked about, it jumped out to all of us, again, in the category of things that little phrases that occasionally are a bit of a giveaway. So H.R. McMaster, who's Donald Trump's national security advisor, he's a three-star army general. I've spent a lot of time with him over the years in Iraq and Afghanistan. He is somebody who, coming into this job, was seen as a scholar, an academic, really kind of sensible, moderate guy. And someone who advocates speaking truth to power. Right. right. Who, who wrote his uh, his doctoral dissertation, later published as a book called Dereliction of Duty, uh, the argument that the U.S. military did not do that during Vietnam. But he has pressed Donald Trump on a lot of things. But one of them was to avoid using a very specific three-word phrase, which was radical Islamic terrorism. H.R. McMaster's argument was, if you use that phrase, you're offending much of the Muslim world. That was the Obama administration's argument for not using that phrase as well. Exactly. So so don't. I mean, he was just saying, like, please don't use that phrase. Please, please, pretty please. And for a few months, you know, Trump was pretty good about it. He did not use it very often. Then he came to the U.N., and at the U.N., in a speech monitored by much of the world, including much of the Muslim world, he again said radical Islamic terrorism. And in case it wasn't clear enough that he meant that, that he meant to remind people that he was the boss, not a German master, Kellyanne Conway, one of his advisors, tweeted out, here it comes, right as he was saying it. And then other Trump acolytes also kind of retweeted his use of that phrase. And I think kind of as we're closing the conversation, it's worth just noting that for a second, that this was a president whose advisors have tried to steer him more recently, his globalist advisors, towards one path. In this speech, reasserting that he is, you know, Alex, the, the Trump that you read as you're reading his books, he is the one echoing Steve Bannon. He is the one echoing Steve Miller. He is not the one echoing H.R. McMaster. He is not the one echoing Jim Mattis. He's a different beast. And those three words in and of themselves kind of drive that home. I will just kind of two quick points on just that phrase itself. One is there's a constant argument among those who want to say radical Islamic terrorism uh, that all, if you say that word, then that is defeated, uh, which— you know, we've said it now, what, five times? So hopefully there's no more Islamic terrorism I'm in the world. I'm pretty sure we just solved We terrorism. just did it right now. Yeah. Uh, it's all done. You're welcome. ISIS called. They yeah. just laid down their weapons. Yeah, there's a white flag. The flag turned from black to white. Uh, the sort of bigger point is 
there has been this talk that a lot of what Trump is trying to do with his foreign policy is to effectively do the 180 of Obama's. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? The Iran deal is part of it. Obama's approach to North Korea was strategic patience. This one is strategic accountability and, of course, the fire and fury and destroy. But to go back to an earlier point, Trump is really railing against the way the U.S. has conducted foreign policy since 1945, right? After the World Wars, after World War II, the whole point was we need to kind of unite together nation states because otherwise this is going to happen again. Millions more will die. Now he's willing to go to the U.N., sort of the epicenter of that, and say, no more. It is striking. We'll end there. Alex, thank you for sitting in. Thanks, Alex. You did a great job. Sure. Sorry, beekeepers out there. Those, those are, that's what I'm calling Zach's fans, the beekeepers. Uh, we the we beekeepers. also appreciate that you studied enough that champs. you actually took notes on a Microsoft Surface. Yes. Well done. Thank Listening you. to your Microsoft Zune as you were as you were taking <laughs> I, these notes. I don't have a Zune. <laughs> Advertisers, take listen. <laughs> as always, I want to thank our producer, Jillian Weinberger, our engineer, Peter Leonard. If you like what you are hearing, we hope you do, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, subscribe, rate, review. You can find us on email at worldlyadvox.com. We read everything and try to respond to everything. Uh, But come reach out to us. We will reach out back. We'd love to hear from you about the kind of things you want us to talk about, the kind of things that you agree with or disagree with. Part of the fun of this show is the community that exists around it. So help us continue to build it. Thank you all. We will be with you again next week. Holla at your girl. Thanks again for tuning in. I wanted to take this moment to insert an absolutely shameless and frankly, very proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Vox Media is the fastest growing modern media company, and it's known for its standout technology and its high-fidelity advertising. The platform is what supports our growth here at Vox, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care about most. And for us, that's national security, it's foreign policy, it's America's place in the world. But for listeners who haven't already, check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's the rest of Vox.com, which goes deeper into explaining the stories to find in the world today, SB Nation, which tells the story behind and beyond the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, what to disrupt next, Racked, which is a great site about fashion, and my personal non-Vox.com favorite, Eater, which is a great site about food, especially if you're traveling and want to know where to go and what to eat in a city you're going to. And so what unites all of these sites and all these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality. We believe in the power of going deeper, and we believe in the best of our audience.